Yo tengo casi 33 años de ser, de ser forense. Nunca había visto una, una escena así. En Spring 2021, reporter Brian Avalar launched an investigation that began in the depths of a grave dug by a serial killer and ended with the government forcing him and other journalists to flee El Salvador. Sonoro and Revista Factum present Humo. Murder and Silence in El Salvador, the story behind a country where the truth and its citizens' rights are buried under the weight of power. Señor Ministro, ¿dónde está Karen y Eduardo Guerrero? ¿Dónde están mis hijos? Listen to Humo, Murder and Silence in El Salvador, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into The Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in The Daily Book Club. My name is Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. This podcast will be about my story and my words, talking about my own personal experiences and self-healing. I do not claim to be a therapist, counselor, or licensed psychologist. Hello, my name is Amanda Bedard, and I'm the co-host, producer, and editor of Invisible Tears. I'm a Reiki master, certified professional life coach, spiritual coach, wellness coach, and a counseling practitioner. Some of the content you will hear in this podcast may be disturbing to some. Viewer discretion is advised. But it is our hope by putting this information out there that we may help others to heal. We will always be a platform for truth and healing. Brought to you by Glassbox Media. This is Invisible Tears. Welcome to the Invisible Tears weekly bonus episode, where we react to the Dark Valley episode that dropped last week. This is part two of our reaction to episode eight. So one last audio sensory related question now this is probably to clear brainer but you never know the four-wheel drive car as he pulled away from you it was a gas engine correct or did it happen to be diesel at the time you probably might not have even known what a diesel engine would sound like but now you'd be able to call it out no problem i'm imagining that it was gas it was not a loud vehicle okay just one of those random questions that could it possibly help 
minimize what vehicles would be looking at. Yeah, as Drew, as you were outlining, the one consistent piece that we keep on hearing, as regardless of whichever way you're telling your story, Jane, is the sound sensory piece and how that was really magnified, right? You were pissed off, so you weren't looking at them, so you weren't using your seeing. You didn't feel the attack, really, again, the sensory overload. But the one consistent theme that keeps on coming up is the sound, the sound of the attack and of the different variables of the attack. So I think that's the reason for the pinging of all the questions about the sound, because maybe there's another piece of information there that's sort of hidden. Oh, I totally get it. You know, it was so silent in that parking lot that night. And I think that's why every time I remember something that made a sound like him walking away, him starting his vehicle and coming towards me and you know and then I realized he's driving by me and it wasn't gonna run over me and then when I rolled over and I could hear the blood just gushing out of me it was like there was so much silence in the air so all those sounds that I heard were just magnified this was all just brought to my attention since we did the episode with crawl spaces how much I actually heard that night. I didn't realize that. And the explanation that we, you know, that we've been talking about with that, that's all new to me. I looked it up. We get to get done doing that interview with Crawlspace. I got up and went online and started looking it up and reading about it. And, you know, me not remembering the pain of this actual stabbing because I don't remember feeling the actual pain. And my mind just taken over after that and just going into survival mode and my body going into survival mode and into shock. It was interesting how that sensory overload was my hearing, the sounds that I heard. That was really interesting. And that's why I'm wondering if we can dig in and maybe try to find out what you may have heard before the attack to see if that might shed light onto something. The fact that it was, that sensory was so high at that point, you know, was it for a reason? Did you hear something prior that might be, you know, the key or whatnot? So something for us to maybe think about and look into a little bit more. Yeah, oh, definitely. I actually really want to have a conversation with John Philpin about it. Yeah. And see what his opinion is. See if he's ever done any kind of research on that. I agree. That would be a really interesting conversation to have with him. Yeah. I'm sure he does. And I'm sure that he has experience working with patients where that definitely took place. On a side note, I think we should really actually almost send John this episode to be like, hey, we do actually have some questions for you. Do you have any insight into what we're talking about or possible avenues for us to take it in the future? So, yeah, we may not have to send it to him because he listens to us. This is true. He listens to every episode. So maybe he's listening to us now. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. And if so, thank you, John. So the next line of questioning is definitely going more towards like the attack part of uh, the Dark Valley episode. So you definitely say that all of a sudden there was a knife. Do you remember where he pulled it out of? Was it out of, you know, a back sheath in the back of his pants? Was it on a belt buckle? Was it already in his hand? No. When we were struggling in the vehicle, I had smashed my windshield and I was kicking him. He had like almost like 
pushed my legs down to stop me from kicking him. And with his left hand, he took it out. Now, I don't know if he had a one of those leather knife holders. Like a sheath? Yeah, or if he took it out of his back pocket. But he took it from his left side of his hip with his left hand and took it out and was like, maybe this will persuade you to get out of the car. So I know it was, he took it out of the left side. Now, do you happen to remember no? Did it turn out to be like a hunting knife or possibly like a kitchen type knife? Um, was there any characteristics that you do remember? I don't remember. He never opened it. So it wasn't one of those flip pocket knives. I know it wasn't one of those. I don't believe it was a kitchen knife. I believe the blade was just a little bit thicker than a kitchen knife because a kitchen knife's blade is fairly thin if you really look at it. This was not thin, This, especially if you look at my wounds. And my, my wounds are like the couple of the stab wounds I'm looking at on my arm. They are probably, or is that like a half inch or, or so? Maybe an inch wide. So I don't know if you would consider that a large knife. Right. I know with looking at my wounds, I did a little research on this too a couple of months ago. You know, a lot of people asked me to describe the knife. So I did a little research on pocket knives, the flip knife or the pocket knife or the knives that come out of the, you call it a sheath or a hunting knife or anything like that. And some knives are two-sided blades. The, the knife is blade on both sides. Some is just the blade on one side. Some are two-sided blades. And looking at my wounds and what I read online and some of the photos I saw online, I believe he had a, a sharp blade on both sides of the knife. So that would be considered like a, a hunting knife. Yep. And with the width of it, though, would almost like a butterfly knife make a little bit more sense? Butterfly knife. I don't know. I would have to see a picture of that. I would think that it would be hard to open up the butterfly knife and sort of like have that like in a back pocket without some sort of, you know, when it was like presented to Jane, it was essentially like already out. So maybe the size of a butterfly knife, but not a butterfly knife. I would just think that it would be hard to have an open butterfly knife like somewhere on you. But it would be a little bit easier as you're pulling it out to actually open it up as well. I don't think okay. it was a knife that he opened up. I really don't. I think it was a regular knife with a handle, and he just took it out. Okay. Because he, he only had one hand because he was holding my feet and legs down to pre prevent me from kicking him anymore. So when he took it out, he didn't have to do anything with it. It was the blade was there. The knife was there. Now, another, another thing that people ask, <laughs> and I'm really not sure. I think I'm sure, but I'm... In one sense, I'm not really sure. Now, people ask me, okay, if he took it out of his pocket or took it from his left side, that would make him left-handed. But I believe he was stabbing me with his right hand. Now, it all happened really fast. By the time he was, had me on the ground and started stabbing me, I was already in defensive mood. And I was just trying, I was focusing so much on his stabbing me and trying to get him to stop stabbing me. I never really paid attention whether he was stabbing me with the right or the left, but I really believe he was stabbing me with the right hand. So when you were lying on your back on the ground, was he on your left or right side? 
He was more on my left side. So you're lying on the ground. He's on your left side. So when you were on the ground and he was stabbing, was he holding down your upper part or lower part or anything? Or was both hands on the knife? Did he have a free hand? And what was that free hand doing? I'm not sure what the free hand was doing. I believe he had a free hand. But I know he was stabbing me with one hand. Okay. He may have been trying to get my hands out of the way. But like I said, I was like really trying to prevent him from stabbing my belly. My hands were in front of me. I I have probably 14 stab wounds to my hands that were defensive wounds. Now, you said that he was on like one knee and the other knee was sort of standing up. Where was that knee placed near your body? By my left hip. By your left hip. I'm just trying to think of or try to picture where was his placement in comparing to your body to try to think about the different angles as far as right-handed versus left-handed stabbings? I believe that he was knelt down on my left side by my hip. Now, remember, he's facing me. So he was on my left side on his knee, and then his foot was on my right side. He was, like, kneeling, but then on his foot on my right side because he was right on top of me. So right over you. Okay. Right over me. And most of my stab wounds are on my left side, so that would be him using his right hand. Yeah, and exactly, and also like the placement of the body, or the placement of you, and then his body, his right knee was on the ground on your left side, his left knee was elevated, because he was sort of standing over you, then yeah, going from the right motion would make a little bit more sense, because he's not going over his own knee, so right-handed attack. Yep. 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 So even though he reached for the knife with his left hand while you guys were still in the car, because you were kicking so fiercely and fighting him so fiercely, Jane, enough to smash your windshield, right? He could have been using his dominant hand to like that, but that would make sense in my mind. He could have been using his dominant hand to hold down your legs to then just grab the knife and just essentially show the knife to try and actually get you to stop attacking him. Yeah, definitely. Makes sense. So you were able to get to Bob's house. It was great hearing him at the end of the show. Isn't he awesome? (laughs) I also just couldn't help but laugh because I'm like the old time Vermonters, especially Vermonters in particular, they always have to tell you a joke. And it's always that type of joke of like, where the hell are you going with this? And then you have to give that little (laughs) chuckle because you're like, okay, that was pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, he's he's a true redneck. He's a, a true New Hampshire like yeah. go way back. You could tell he grew up in the area. Yeah. True redneck. <laughs> yep. Now, um, PD Farnham, did you stay into contact with him after the fact? This sounds like you guys were pretty close before. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. We stayed in contact. He died a few years ago, which was unfortunate. I was uh, super sad to hear about that. But I did hear from um, several people uh, stating that, you know, when he showed up at the scene and saw me laying there in a pool of blood, it was something he never forgot, unfortunately. Yeah, it stayed with him for a long time. That was going to be my question was, did he ever tell you, you know, what was going through his mind when he pulled up to the house, not expecting to see somebody that he knows in the shape that you were in? It did have to be rough. Yeah. You know, every time I saw him after that, he was... He was always so happy to see me, you know, and 
And I think he was happy to see me because he knew how close I came to death and that I survived. And he was really glad and happy that I survived something like that, um, especially in the condition that he did see me in. I mean, I, I still can remember laying on the ground and just looking at his face and the way he was looking at me and the panic calls on the radio that I can remember again hearing. And um, that was when I first realized I may not survive, uh, that it was that bad, that it was really that bad, was looking at his face and seeing his face and hearing the panic in his voice. He was a good man. P.D. Farnham was a good man. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. And now back to our episode. Now, do you know if um, the police that night, were they so engaged with trying to get you help? But did they happen to put out a lookout for the vehicle, knowing which direction he was going into? Like, was Keene contacted? Was Hensilla Winchester PD contacted? to try to find this vehicle? The only one I really remember being there is Petey as far as law enforcement. Now, I mean, it wasn't long after I got to Bob's house where I was in and out of consciousness and really wasn't sure what was going on. Um, remember very little bits and pieces. Remember hearing little bits and pieces. But Petey was the only law enforcement I remember being there. He did immediately, as soon as he got there, of course, his first question, because he knew me and Dennis, was it Dennis? And I said, no. And then he immediately was like, what kind of vehicle? And of course, I didn't know the specific kind of vehicle, but um, Bob, the one that I was at his house, um, his brother-in-law lived next door, and he had a very similar vehicle. So I was like, it was kind of like, Jay's vehicle, you know, it was like very similar to that. I remember hearing PD say be on the lookout or not even be on the lookout, but I remember him saying over the radio something about a four wheel drive possible Jeep. So I know that I did remember hearing that a couple of days after that, after my attack, they did do a roadblock right there on Route 10 and stop vehicles in the morning as people were going to work. And at night when people were going home from work and uh, they stopped and questioned people if, with the composite, if they knew, you know, heard anything, had any information on that vehicle or whatever. So I do know that they did that for a couple of days or a week or whatever. Uh, when you did get uh, to the hospital, how long until you came to where you knew what was going on? Oh, gosh, great question. Well, I know for the first, like, three or four days, I was heavily sedated. I was on a ventilator because I had the two collapsed lungs. So they had me very heavily sedated. Like, I remember, like, a couple of times opening my eyes and seeing Dennis there. I remember once I opened my eyes, I see him sitting in a chair and then a while later I can remember opening my eyes and seeing him sitting in a recliner <laughs> that they brought in for him and then I remember opening my eyes and oh he's got a TV it was like um, I think probably they had me up awake and they took out the ventilator I think it was like four or five days after my attack probably closer to five days 
And then once the, the they took the ventilator out and stopped with the, the heavy meds, I should say, I started coming to more and being more aware. I would say it was about five days. That's when the TV left the room. <laughs> That's when Dennis was like, nope, TV's not going to be in here. She's not going to see this on the news. You know, that's when he, he really got productive. And I, you know, I wanted to see my family. I wanted to see everybody. I wanted to see my friends. Dennis was telling me how many people were there wanting to visit me and, and concerned about me. But because I was in ICU, he and my mom were pretty much the only ones allowed to see me. So when I came to and the ventilator came out, I was like, okay, that's when I heard about my regular room. I want to go to my regular room so I could start having visitors. I had to, you know, work towards that. Was there a moment when you did have that moment where you're like, I'm I'm going to survive. I'm going to pull through this. Did it happen while you were still in ICU going in and out? Or was it after you were in your, your own room? I was definitely in my regular room. I'm going to guess it was a, a good week before I actually realized and was able to process the dynamic of the situation, how serious my attack was and the reality of it, the totality of it all. You know, I I had to process, one, I was stabbed this many times. Two, I had to process that, you know, I had several wounds. I had to do a lot of healing. I had to process that the person that did this to me still wasn't identified. And then I had to process the media attention that was put on this. It was like layers. Like I had to process this and process that and process this and process that. And I'm going to guess it was probably, it probably took about a week for me to actually realize the totality of everything. You know, and then throw in there that I read in the paper that it's, uh, you know, my attacker was a serial killer and I'm the only survivor. So that was another layer uh, of info that I had to process. And I was only 22. I was a girl from a small town in New Hampshire. I've never been directly involved with anything like this so violent and everything in my life ever, whether I knew somebody else that had gone through this or not. So there was so much for me to process and really um, understand how big this all was. I was going to say magnitude. Magnitude. Yeah. Perfect that's a good word. Yep. It was a lot for me to, to really process. I think I still was processing everything when I got home, you know, almost three weeks later. It was a lot. A lot for a 22-year-old that all she wanted to do was stop for a soda. Looking forward to be a mom for the first time and just living my life. And then you cover it with Jen, the lifelong scars that you got from this attack. You feel them every single day. You just go to dry off your hands and you hit the scars with the towel. At what point in your life, or has it even reached that point where rubbing against those scars, having that reminder didn't cause that mental pain that, you know, comes with remembering what happened. The scars, I mean, even though a lot of them have faded quite a bit, 
they're a constant reminder to me on what happened to me. But I've done so much healing and, and so much counseling. Instead of them being a, a negative reminder to me of what happened to me, they actually give me strength because I survived. Look what I survived. They're there to remind me how strong I really am and that I am a survivor. I love that. That's so beautiful. I was going to say, that's the best way to take it. It is. I, I mean, it's, it's the only way to take it, right? If you want to, you know, continue living. Everybody has different scars. Um, you know, some people have physical scars and some people have mental scars. And with me, unfortunately, for many years, I have both. Obviously, I still have physical scars and I have mental scars. But instead of looking at these scars in such a negative way, that was impacting my life in such a negative way. I had to take something out of it that was positive. I had to move forward with it. And that was huge with my healing and my healing process. It was all about moving forward, not being stuck in the past. It was about looking at things very differently and knowing that, you know, I have to move forward with this. Jane, I've got the scar on my knee from when I hit a coffee table, so I know exactly what you're talking about. You just have to move forward. You don't throw it out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can't just erase it. You can't take a pencil eraser and erase it off your body. They fade in time. All scars fade with time. And uh, my scars, both physically and mentally, have faded with time. It's because you're stronger and you no, no longer need them there as a reminder. Exactly. I don't know. I thought about getting some tattoos on some of these scars and be sarcastic with them. You know, Have fun with it. One of these days. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Get morbid just to really fuck with people. <laughs> <laughs> I was going a little bit more of the route of be like inspirational and be like, oh. <laughs> Drew takes it straight to the, straight to the other side and is like, no. <laughs> <laughs> go savage with it sorry that's the way i go oh there have been times when i've had to find humor in this too you know yeah you have to you can't take yeah. life yeah. too seriously to. all the time yeah what happened to me was bad for the most part i've accepted and have moved forward and you know i'm trying to make something positive out of what happened to me especially with the the advocacy events that we got coming up and trying to advocate for those that can't advocate for themselves and speak for the the ones that have no voices. <laughs> Got to move forward and find some kind of positive out as something that was so horrific. So this is uh, this week's reaction episode to the eighth episode of Dark Valley, uh, Telling Jane's Story. And another episode that's left off with a great cliffhanger. We all know where this one is going, and I'm looking forward to it. Yes, me too. Uh, Jen just never disappoints, I'll tell you. She has done an amazing job with Dark Valley. People are talking about it. People are out there talking about Dark Valley. You know, one of the things with her through the process of doing this project with her is she has felt... Every single emotional pain that I have felt, you know, 
She has sat there and cried with me. Um, she has told me she has gone home and cried by herself. We are telling a, a story and talking about these cases the way she has been. And if she can feel it so emotional, be so emotional about it and feel it in such an emotional way, that tells me that I am definitely working with the right person with this project. And I don't think anybody could be telling this story any better than she could on so many levels. When we were sitting in the car and, you know, I broke down and, and expressed how much I hated him. And I started crying and, you know, Jen, why did he do this to us? She was sitting right there popping the tissues out of that tissue box, giving me tissues, you know. She was there for me. She was there with me. She saw the pain, how much pain this has caused me over the years. She saw it firsthand and didn't try to remove it. And uh, I thank her for that. I I'm glad that she was there with me that day. Grateful that she was there with me that day as I was telling my story and talking about my attack. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Invisible Tears. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to hear all future episodes. Click into our link tree too in the episode description to find and follow us on all our social medias. And it also links to our website, invisible-tears.com, where you can keep current on any events that may be coming up, read more about Jane and the team, and read more about all the Connecticut River Valley unsolved cases. If you want to learn more about my wellness practice, Guided Path Wellness, head to guidedpathwellness.org. There you can read more about me and my certifications, more about the Reiki and coaching services I offer both in person and remote, and read all about my products for sale that I make through the practice. Feel free to utilize the contact us section on the website with any questions or utilize that free 15-minute consultation booking button if you have any questions about what might work for you. Evil may exist in this world, but we will not let it win. See you next episode.